I've talked to you about this uh, a lot, actually. For many years, I've had a spiritual practice, a, a discipline, where I read through the Bible every year all the way through. I've been doing this probably for 18 years, somewhere around that area. And uh, if you've been around here, I, I don't know if I have my Bible reading plan, but we give out Bible reading plans. And if you follow the Northwest Church Bible reading plan, you'll read through the New Testament twice and the Old Testament once in a year. I've been doing this for a long time, and it's been a great blessing because there are a lot of passages that if you just pick and choose, you're going to avoid, especially when it comes to the Old Testament. There are a lot of things we don't understand. There are stories that we don't get. And if you just give sort of a, a once-over view, you kind of don't dive in and, and understand some of the details. But as you read through the Bible, one of the blessings is that you get really familiar with Scripture, and you start to ask questions that you didn't ask last year, and I really love that. And one of the stories that's always stood out to me is found in 1 Kings chapter 18, and the only word I have for it is epic. It's like every middle school boy's dream. It's got, <laughs> it's got like all of those things, you know, it's got the villain and the false prophets and the, the Jezebel. And the, I mean, it's just got everything in there, like war and, 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 and stuff that we have questions about. But Elijah, the prophet, confronts the false prophets, King Ahab and the whole nation of Israel. And, and, and I just think there's a lot in there, maybe some things we know, some things we haven't seen before. But before I read the actual scripture, and I, and I am going to read it, before I read it today, I want to bring you into some of the context, just to sort of frame up the part that I'm not going to be reading. Now, 1 Kings is what we call a historical narrative. There's different kinds of literature in the Bible. This is just a library of books that's inspired by the Spirit of God. And so this is a historical narrative. And sometimes people say, if you teach a historical narrative properly, you can't pull things out and sort of impose them into our world today for practical application. You'd call that like eisegesis, like you see what you want into the text, you sort of pull it out. And that's not really what it meant. But I, but I kind of believe both. I think we have to rightly divide and understand the word as a historical narrative. It's describing things that have happened. But I do think history always gives us lessons if we pay attention. If you read the Bible as a historian, you're probably not going to pull much out. But if you read the Bible as a missionary, you're looking to learn things from the stories that we read about in our past. And I think it's powerful when you think of it that way. But here's what's going on in this particular story. The nation of Israel had given themselves to the influence of false prophets and unfathomable idolatry. They were worshiping Yahweh God, the one and true God, but they were also now worshiping a pantheon of other gods that were they were influenced by through going into the promised land in, in the land of Canaan. And they, they were worshiping with mixture, and so they thought that this was okay. And it took a number of years to get into this point, and even their leadership was corrupt. The king at this time was Ahab, and he was the seventh king of Israel. And they're about 100 years removed from King, da uh, king David. And we are told in 1 Kings 16, believe it or not, there's one passage, I think it's verse 33, it says that King Ahab did more to provoke the Lord than any before him. How many of you would like that testimony? That is just one of the worst verses in the Bible to be said of anybody. He was the worst. The Bible says so. He marries a Sidonian princess named Jezebel, and he did this for a political alliance, like one nation to another coming together. The Lord specifically said, especially to those that would be in leadership, but any of his people do not do this. And the reason was because of worship. It had nothing to do with ethnicity. It had everything to do with the worship of other gods. And the Lord said, do not 
intermarry with these other nations because they're going to bring the worship of these Canaanite gods into your camp. And that is exactly what happened. So Ahab marries Jezebel, and she basically sets up a temple to Baal. We say Baal, but it's uh, grammatically Baal, so I'll try to get that right. She sets up a temple to Baal in Samaria. She tears all the altars of the Lord down on all the high places, and she erects new altars in these places where people, Israelites, can go and worship all these pagan gods, and that is what they do. She leads Israel to worship through human sacrifices, legalized orgies, and sexual immorality, and I am just summarizing at this point. In the midst of all this, God raised up a man, a prophet named Elijah, to bring his people back. Now, we don't know where Elijah comes from. We don't have his background, his family history, or his pedigree. We don't know exactly who he is. So he just sort of rises up on the scene, and in 1 Kings 17, 1, God sends him to Ahab to confront him within this sort of idolatrous path that Israel's on. So he does that, and he gives him a prophetic word, and here's what the word was, that the land will not reign except by my word. And that's exactly what happens. So the whole land of Israel goes into a terrible drought for three years, which brought about a devastating famine. And as you know, if we don't have water, pretty much everything dies. The crops die, the vegetation, the animal life, people die because we need water in order to live and survive. And so this is a terrible time in Israel's, Israel's history. Elijah heard the voice of God again at the end of those three and a half years, and the Lord says to him, go to Ahab and tell him that I will send the rain on the land. And with that, I'm going to read 1 Kings 18, verse 20, all the way to uh, 46. And, and by the way, that's a lot of Bible that we're going to read today. And the reason that we need to do that is because I could summarize a story, but this is God's inspired word. And I would rather you hear the inspired word than my summary version. Can I just get a nice big amen today? And we are not, don't, this, is the, this is the right place to read lots of the Bible. So with that said, everybody take a breath. <laughs> with a lot of grace and patience. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel, and he brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. One thing I forgot to tell you is when Elijah told Ahab uh, that he was going to send the rain, before he told them that, before he gave, gave him that prophecy, he confronted him and he said, gather all the prophets of Baal, all the prophets of Asherah, and the nation of Israel, and meet with me. So he told, them that before, told him that before he actually gave him the prophetic word about God sending the rain. So that hadn't happened yet, but now they're gathering here to Mount Carmel. Verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. If Baal, then follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up, place it on the wood and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put a fire under it. Then you will call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that's a good idea. <laughs> so Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first. 
for you are many, and call in the name of your God, put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they made. It came about at noon that Elijah began to mock them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside, or maybe he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out on them. Did I not tell you this was a middle school? All right. I don't know what you do with that. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the oxen pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and he also filled up the trench with water. At that time, the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back again. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They better say that. My gosh. Then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Now Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of a roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, or Carmel and he crouched down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, go, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing and he said, go back. He did this seven times. It came about at the seventh time that he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I don't have that anointing, that's for sure. You know, we live in a state and a city that's accustomed to a lot of rainfall. And you're wondering how much, so I'll tell you. It's 39 inches a year. But it's funny because we have this testimony. I used to preach around the, the nation a bunch, and I would go to places like Louisiana and Atlanta, and they would always talk about Seattle and how much it rained. But you know what's interesting is that Orlando and Atlanta and many of these other cities, New York and so on, they get far more rain than we do. So whenever I talk to people, usually that are from Seattle or Washington, and I go, yeah, the rain, you say it with a smile on your face, and they don't have a smile on their face. It's like, we don't like it. We live in, in a world that has a lot of rain, a lot of precipitation, but we don't enjoy it. And I think the reason is the overcast. 
I think it's the, the depressing gray clouds that we don't quite enjoy. Can I, is that right? <laughs> it's, so it's not that it's, it rains too much. It doesn't, it doesn't rain that heavy, but we're, we're used to rain. We live with it. We're, we're used to it. But for them, in their culture, in this ancient time, in the agrarian culture, they relied on rain. In fact, in the Bible, there's dozens of scriptures where rain was considered a blessing from the Lord. And whenever rain didn't come, it was as though God was withholding his blessing from his people. There are numbers of passages that say this. In fact, Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 uses rain as a metaphor for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because that's the blessing that they understood it to be, that the outpouring, the rains of the Spirit, the early and the, the late rains. Here's what happened, though. Israel walked away from God, and God withheld the rains for three years during that time, and they did not repent. And the question that you might ask is, did they want the rain? And the answer is obvious. Absolutely, they wanted the rain, but they were seeking rain from other sources instead of repenting and turning their hearts to God. Even though the rain was withheld, they still didn't repent wholeheartedly and turn to the Lord that he might bless them and replenish the land. And so the heavens were closed over their lives until covenant faithfulness and heart allegiance was restored. And did you know that? Did you know that sometimes God will withhold something from us because he's concerned with our hearts being in alignment with him? I know we want the blessing. I know we always want the thing to happen. We always want that. But there are times where God withholds those things in our life that we're praying for, that we're asking for, because he's more concerned with our heart and relationship with him than he is with us getting whatever it is that we think that we need. And we see this principle throughout the scriptures, and that's certainly what's happening with them. God was not okay with his people going their own way, so he has a plan and he sends a prophet. And here's basically a couple things that happen in this passage that I want to focus on today. And the first is this, Elijah confronted the idolatry of Israel before he prophesies that rain is on the way. There's some things that he needs to get right with the people of God. And the first one is he confronts their idolatry. Here's what he says in verse 21, as he's standing before the false prophets, King Ahab and the nation of Israel right there on the mountain. He says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the Bible says, after he made this declaration, nobody said anything. They didn't want to respond to this very clear charge and exhortation for them to give their entire hearts to God. Over time, Israel had given themselves to the worship of other gods, and yet they still thought that they could worship Yahweh. They thought they could worship both. We can have our cake and eat it too. You might call that mixture. This is what we call idolatry, and it's throughout the Old Testament. One of the gods that they worshiped was Baal. We've mentioned him, but let me just tell you who he is. I want to show you a picture also as well of Baal and Asherah. The god of the elements is who he is. The god of fire, the god of water, the god of rain. Archaeological discoveries show Baal represented as a bull or a man with horns, and he's associated with thunder and lightning, so he always has like a, a thunderbolt in his hand. And we understand that where there's thunder, there's also rain, and so can you understand and, and can you see it here that they're crying out to the God of rain? They want the blessing and they don't care how they get it. And so they're worshiping an idol to get 
what they think that they need. And here's the problem with idolatry. We also have Asherah. It says 450 prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Asherah. They're worshiping her as well. She's the fertility goddess, protector of mothers and children. She's the mother of Baal and 70 other gods. She was often depicted as a woman with children, emphasizing her breasts and womb. And that's a polite summary, to say the least. Now, this is Baal over here. You know, this is an ancient uh, uh, discovery that they made. They unearthed this. There's a ton of like animated graphic pictures of him, but this is something that they discovered. And then this is a Shira, and it's the only one that I could really show you without feeling mildly inappropriate. Yeah. There are other gods that they worship, Canaanite gods, Molech, like this is the, the god of fire. This is a god that they would offer human sacrifices to. In fact, there was a chamber that was built and, and, and uh, basically a throne with this statue on top of it. And, and in the, the Molech, this, this bull man god that kind of looked like Baal, there were chambers where you could offer human sacrifices. And I won't go into that, but it's just sick. It's just sick. In order to placate this god, that's what they did. And Israelites joined in this um, in this kind of worship. They had Nahor, Nahar, this is the river god, and so obviously um, everything that they looked to or the elements of their day, they had a god for that, and they had basically adopted those gods from the Canaanites, and the Lord told them not to intermingle with them for this reason, and they did it anyways, and this is what happened. They end up becoming idolaters. And it's unfathomable, unfathomable to understand how Israel would go into such idolatry when you think about it. Like, how could they have done that? And yet, I want to tell you today that idolatry is not just Israel's sin, it's actually our sin as well. Even though we don't worship these type of statues and images, there are things that we do give more affection to and put above the worship of our God. So their idols were statues and images that they worshiped that represented something that they wanted. They didn't worship idols as some fun weekend practice. This wasn't like something they wanted to do. They worshiped idols because they wanted the blessing or the promise that they offered in return. If you worship me, the idea was is that I'm going to send the rain. If you worship me, the idea was that I'm going to give you prosperity and life and blessing. That's the promise. So they worshiped and they did egregious things before God in order to, in order to get what they thought that they would. Our idols today are images and icons that we worship that represent something that we want or something that we like more than God. An idol is not always a bad thing in and of itself, but idolatry takes a good thing and makes it a God thing. That's what idolatry really is like for us today. And you're saying to me, Pastor Ben, what are idols today then? And I'm so glad you asked that question because I have some answers for you. One of the idols that I think we worship today is, is sex. When we bypass the biblical context of our sexuality, it becomes an idol. Objectification and pleasure over intimacy and covenant faithfulness. It's a form of worship that destroys us and it dishonors God. We have the idol of entertainment. We spend hours on end watching things that defile our minds and influence our hearts in ways that change us and dishonor the Lord. And we know these things are representing 
that which Jesus paid for, and yet we tend to entertain ourselves with them. We understand that when we don't love Jesus and when we don't follow him, that this is normal in the world to think this way and to say these things and to entertain ourselves in this way. But for followers of Jesus, there's a grief in our heart because we've been saved out of such a life. And so we can no longer entertain ourselves with the things of the world. And it isn't about legalism. It's about loyalty to Jesus. That when we love the Lord, we don't want to participate. We don't want to celebrate. We don't want to entertain ourselves with the things of the world because Jesus died for those things. Many of us have participated in such a life, and so we have to move away from that. It's like, I don't even want to touch the clothes that are stained with my old life. That's, that's, that's how I feel about it. And so entertainment can become an idol. And again, there's nothing wrong with watching a little TV. There's nothing wrong with watching a sports program. There's nothing wrong with a good movie. There's nothing wrong with some music that you like. And, and there's plenty of neutral music that's not Christian. I'm not here to just say, you got to turn on 105.3. Amen. I'm just saying... I'm just saying there's a lot of stuff that ain't neutral in the world that we live in, and we become okay with it, and it becomes an idol to us. And the minute the Lord says, I want you to give that up because I want you to have ears that are pure, and, and I want you to have eyes that are pure, and I want you to have a, have a heart that's undefiled, and there are things that are defiling your heart. And the minute the Lord says, I want you to give me that thing, can we put it on the altar? If we can't put it on the altar, it's an idol. If the Lord comes asking for it, no matter how we define it or describe it, if the Lord asks for it and we can't put it on the altar, it's an idol. We love it more than God. Friends, that's, that's our idolatry today also. Social media, I, I threw this one in there. We give incredible amounts of time to checking out the lives of other people. Again, it's not wrong, it's not bad, but how much time do we give to this thing where it just sucks us in? And have you ever noticed that it tends to know things about your conversation that you're having in your home, in the privacy of your own home with your own family, and all of a sudden it pops up on your social media? It sounds, it feels like somebody's watching. I always feel like somebody's watching me. Because they are. Because they are. All right, the secret's out, guys. Illuminati's real. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but we worship idols of, of modern times, and, and, and social media causes us to compare ourselves to other people. Look how photogenic they are. Look how cute their family is. I wish my family was like, that's just a picture, man. Your family could be jacked up, but on Instagram, you look great. You know, It's like, stop that. <laughs> you know, it's for the gram. It's for the gram. They got a new app called, out called Be Real, like they needed one, didn't they? <laughs> We're going to start a new app. It's called Be Real because everything else is fake. The next, it's like, uh, reminds me of produce, right? You, you have regular produce and then there's organic and then there's certified organic. That's, that's what's going to happen, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, be real, be more real, be seriously real. <laughs> that's what, <laughs> why? Did, did, did anybody ever stop and think it's because we're fake? So we develop these things and, and we compare ourselves to other people and this outward appearance, this thing, because we, 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 we can worship this type of stuff. We can worship our career. We give our lives to building a career and making money to become something. But then we don't realize later in life, all of a sudden, we, we see that it robbed us of our biblical command to love our spouse and to raise our kids in the admonition of the Lord. And we feel like it's too late now. 
that we gave all of our time and energy to this thing, and now this thing doesn't mean anything to us, and what really means something to us all of a sudden is fleeting, and it's slipping through our, our grasp, and we realize maybe I've made my career an idol. Maybe I've given too much to this thing. What about money? We build our portfolio, we acquire possessions, and we place our security, our happiness, and our future outlook in what we have and acquire rather than who we have. I mean, that's really, that, that's where rubber meets the road is that we trust in our money, we trust in our accounts, we trust in our job. But when you lose all of that, what do you have? And friends, you know what you have, you have God. He's not our last resort, he's our source. But when we know, we know we have an idol in our life when these other things become too much in our life. You can lose it all, but you never lose it, really. You, you always have the Lord. And so these things can, can become too much in our life. For, for example, sports. Nothing wrong with, with liking baseball or basketball or football, but when you love it more than you love God. I remember I was on a retreat like 20 years ago, a men's retreat, and this pastor was preaching and he was talking about how the Lord put his finger on his love for baseball. And he said to him, you love baseball more than you love me. And his automatic American response was that that's, that's not true because we think we can have it all. We think we can have it all and we can have the same level of affection and we just put God into the mix and that's, and that's what God wants, right? Like God's in the mix. No, that's not what God wants. In fact, God demands heart loyalty. God demands full allegiance, a kind that should actually make us uncomfortable because we have all of these options. It should make us uncomfortable once in a while. I was actually thinking about, I, was, I knew I was gonna preach this message. <laughs> and I was like, man, you know, I don't think you could preach this passage in all churches, you know. Like, how do you preach this message and be like, hey, God bless you. Amen, just go have a good Sunday. Hey, just, you know, all right. It's kind of tough. How do you talk about idolatry? And still be encouraged. Well, you, you do it in a way where you call out what the Bible talks about and that our fulfillment is found in Christ. It is that we appeal to the true heart of a person and saying this is where we're truly found, in him and him alone. These other things we might like in life, there's nothing wrong with them. I'm, I'm not here to tell you that you can't enjoy comfort and technology and education, family and all that, but these things can become an idol and they, they can happen. It can happen quickly. In ministry, even can become an idol. Absolutely, it ha it's happened. Uh, it's happened. An idol gives us worth, value, security. We can't imagine life being good without it. It takes the ultimate place of God as our primary source of truth and encouragement and worth and loyalty and allegiance and fulfillment. The illustration that came to my mind when I was thinking about this was Israel was like an unfaithful person in a marriage who doesn't want to give up their spouse but also doesn't want to give up their illicit lover. And so they stay in this valley of indecision, and the fact is they end up losing both because of their disloyalty to begin with. Elijah says, choose Baal or choose Yahweh. I mean, it's very confrontational. Choose one. You can't have them, you can't have them both. There was a large field with a fence down the middle and a group of people gathered around it. Jesus stood on one side of the fence calling people to himself, and the devil stood on the other doing the same. And it wasn't long before some of the people went through the opening on Jesus' side and some of the people went through the fence on the devil's side. One man remained in the middle and he sat upon the fence trying to decide where he belonged. Everyone went their separate ways and after a time, 
the devil reappeared seemingly looking for something and he spotted the man on the fence and he called to him again and the man shook his head and he said, I haven't decided which side of the fence I belong on to which the devil replied, you've already made your decision because I owned and built the fence. My question for you today is what idols do you have in your life? What are the things that have become more important than the Lord to you? Just if you just close your eyes for a second and ask the Lord, what are the things in my life that have become more important than you? And I want you to know what comes to your mind is an idol. And it doesn't mean that you have to root it out of your life, but it means you have to put it in its proper place. You cannot worship it and give more of your heart and more of your affection and more of yourself because when we do that, it's a slippery slope away from the Lord. And before you know it, we have very little with him. Well, here's what happens in the story. Number two is Elijah rebuilt the altar of the Lord. Elijah said, let's prepare a sacrifice and the God who answers by fire, that is the true God of Israel. So the prophets of Baal and Asherah, they prepared an ox, they begin to dance and sing and They even cut themselves all day long, but nothing happened and no one answered. In verse 30, it was Elijah's turn to present a sacrifice, but it says something interesting. He first repaired the altar of the Lord. Now, why is this important? Because Jezebel sent her prophets throughout the land and ordered that all the altars be torn down and replaced with altars to Baal and other pagan gods. And we know that an altar is a place of worship. An altar is a place of God's presence. An altar is a place where we bring sacrifices to the Lord. And these have been torn down and replaced with places of worship to other gods. And so the first thing that he does is a prophetic act. And it was public in front of all of them. And by rebuilding the altar of the Lord, here's what he said. We don't worship God our way. We worship God his way. It was a powerful prophetic moment in the life of Israel, and they couldn't understand it. We don't just get to worship God how we want. We rebuild the altar, and now we offer sacrifices to the Lord. This is what he prescribed. You may not understand it, and it may not be the way you chose, but it's what God said. And if God said, worship me this way, then that's the way that we worship God. That's heart loyalty. Idolatry brings mixture of priorities and it robs us of biblical faithfulness where the things of God matter less. And that's the negotiation at times in our mind and it happens to you and it happens to me where we begin to negotiate things. Well, it's like, I still love God. And when we have to say that, I still love God. It's like saying, I like God. It's like saying, I want him in my life. It's like saying, he still matters to me. It's not that I've given myself over to something completely opposite. It's not that he isn't part of my life. See, when we start to talk like that, what we're, what we're doing is giving a window into our soul that he matters, but he doesn't matter as much. That he matters, but he matters as much as other things in our life. Like he's a part of our life, but he's not our life. And this is what he's confronting in the people of Israel, the mixture. And so with his actions, Elijah says, this altar mattered and I will rebuild it before I do anything else. And he did it right in front of all of them. This altar altar mattered. And sometimes we need to rebuild things in our life that mattered before and we've lost that priority today. We need to rebuild those things. You say, what does God want me to do with my life? Well, maybe you've let some stuff go and he wants you to rebuild the altar of your life, the altar of prayer, the altar of worship, 
where you raise up a sacrifice and an offering to the Lord, these things that the Bible calls us to and we slip away from. That's what happens for good Christian people. Things that God prioritizes start to matter less. Things like being a part of a church, being a part of fellowship, praying, reading, studying our Bible, serving other people, forgiving when we're offended. These things the Bible calls us to, calls us to a faithfulness. And when they start to matter less and other things start to matter more, God calls us to repent and rebuild those places in our life because that's what honors him and that's what he wants from our worship. He wants us to rebuild that and become faithful to it. Did you know biblical faithfulness requires the power of the Holy Spirit? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands today, but if I asked you this question, it's kind of, I'm not Elijah here confronting you. (laughs) Elijah's confronting us. But if I asked you, have you slipped on any of your biblical faithfulness? Like, Ben, here are the things that the Bible calls Christians to do. And if we're honest, some of those things we're not doing, or at minimum, we're struggling. And maybe we used to do those things more, but we're struggling with it now. And I want to give you some hope today that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can actually live in biblical faithfulness. So if you and I wake up tomorrow, we're like, man, I'm really going to do it this time. I'm really going to try hard this time. You got to stop right there and go, Holy Spirit, fill my life because I can't do it. And I have successfully proven that I will fail every time. So would you help me to be faithful even when I've been a failure? Or we can wallow around in our failure or we can stand up and say, fill me with the Holy Spirit that I would be faithful to you and God will give it. The scripture hit me the other day, Galatians chapter five, it talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. There's nine, I know it, there's nine. Faithfulness, it's the fruit of the? It's not the fruit of my performance. It's not the fruit of my best day. It's not the fruit of how long I've been a Christian. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So I've got to get up in the morning and say, fill me with the Holy Spirit so that I can be faithful to what your word says. And if I'm not doing that, what I will be is religiously guilty. That every time I hear the command of God or every time I read about what he wants from my life, I'm just going to feel bad because I'm not living that way. And so when we start doing that, we start tuning out. Because we tried and we can't, so we might as well just tune out and and I'm not good at this thing. Friends, no, we have to to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we've got to rebuild some stuff in in our life, in our our house. Uh, In my mind, you like these stories. I'm sure it's not true, but I just can't help myself. We, um, we've been working on our backyard for some time, solely but surely, but I mean, stuff costs like a million dollars to fix anything today, so I've decided that I'm going to fix it. <laughs> and I'm going to, misery loves company, so I'm going to drag a few people in the room with me in there. <laughs> there are a couple of you in here today. But we have this side fence, and it had been deteriorating since we got it. So it just needed to be replaced. The other ones are fine, but this one side fence had been deteriorating because of water saturation, it rots. You guys understand. So it was really funny, like the fence boards start breaking out. Anybody ever had this happen? Like you just wake up in the morning, and there's some fence boards gone. You're like, wow, that used to be a full panel right there. (laughs) And uh, now it's just like three out of five. I don't get it. Anyways, the devil is against me. He don't like wood. Um, so, (laughs) sorry, I restrain myself, I promise you, 
So over the years, three and a half years, it, it's so funny. You guys know the, um, you ever go to the fair and those games that cost way too much money and they really are meant to rob you blind? There's one game that you take the ball and, and for those of us that pitched when we were young in the room, we really think we're going to kill it. But you throw the ball and it's like this man with like really big teeth and then you, you hit out his teeth. And so then he's got like two teeth left and then you get a big prize if you hit all of his teeth out, which kind of is a strange game if you think about it. <laughs> Knock his teeth out, get a prize. You know? Here's your tiger. Um, so, but you know, it's kind of funny because like, it's a man with like less teeth. That's what my fence looked like. It looked like every year that went by, it looked like the man was just losing less teeth, you know? And, and so one day I decided we need to fix the fence. We, we, we've got to fix the fence. So I went out there and I tried to cut the panels out because I was like, oh, these posts are, they're sturdy. They're fine. Because men, we do that. We like to think, oh, you don't have to salvage this. This is good. And so I start ripping the fence out and three of the posts just break off like right there. I'm like, I'm still trying to convince myself that it could have worked out. But so next thing you know, I ripped the entire fence out. And yes, I didn't talk to my neighbor. So we're like open borders right now. And I don't know how he feels about that. But I did apologize later. I'm a good Christian. I apologize after. <laughs> so I'm a good Christian. I don't know. I get into the zone. Anybody like that? I just got into the zone. I ripped the whole fence out. Literally, I had it at the dump by the time they came home. So, so now we're just open borders. We've got no fence. And, and I, I, I walk outside and I look at that fence and I go, man, that's a lot of work to rebuild that thing. Anybody of you, did I trigger anybody today? You've got some stuff. You're automatically, your spouse is looking at you right now. You're looking at yourself right now. You've got some things in your life that you need to rebuild physically. You're like, it but it's a lot of work. And the thing that he you hesitate because you know it's going to take hours and hours and hours. You start opening that thing up and you don't know what else is going to come. And so you're like, you just push it off, right? You just push it off. And you, you stare at it every day. You feel bad. You get in your car and you go to Starbucks, get your coffee. You're fine. <laughs> so you learn to accommodate your life in a way where you know that thing needs to be rebuilt, but you push it off for another day because right now you don't have time or you don't have the energy or you just don't want to look at it and get into it. Because if you rebuild it, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes money, and you have to apply yourself. And you know that if you get into it, you're going to fix that, you're going to build that, you're going to make it what it's supposed to be. And here's the reality is that our life is often like that. There are things in the Lord that we let slip. There are things in the Lord that we used to have, and we know we need to go back to them. But we wake up in the morning, and we look at that thing, and it's gone, and we go, eh, I don't like that. And then we just get in the car, and we go to Starbucks, and we feel like we're going to get around to it someday. And here's the reality, is that if we don't give ourselves more to the Lord when we wake up in the morning, we're going to give ourselves to something else. We're not these autonomous beings. We were made to worship someone and something. And if we don't give more of our affection to God, we're going to give it to something. And that's the deception that we all have at times is that I can sort of live this autonomous life. And, and if I just sort of push this off, it's not that bad. But then we get down the road and we realize I was on a conveyor belt for three and a half years. And now this whole thing is damaged and gone. And it's going to take more time to rebuild it than it would have if I would have addressed it two or three years ago. And so the call of God is to rebuild those altars in our life, rebuild our time with God in the word and prayer, rebuild our family devotion, rebuild our relationships and serving in the church, rebuild our witness to others in our neighborhood. 
Maybe you have like a, a, you had a riff with someone in your neighborhood and we talk about evangelism. We talk about reaching people. And I, I shared with you the Bless Every Home app last week and you, you didn't download it yet because you're gonna do it now. <laughs> but you heard the call to pray for your neighbors. But you've got like, oh, you know, you don't know my neighbors, Pastor Ben. You don't know my, my neighbors are rough. Maybe they think that about you. You don't know my neighbors, man. Pastor, man, I've tried this before. My last church, we did that and it didn't bring forth anything. Here's the thing is that we ask and we keep on asking. We rebuild our witness. Maybe something happened with your neighbor and you, you wanna know what? God can rebuild our witness with our neighbors. But we've gotta ask him to help us. Lord, give me a word of knowledge. Help me to be generous to them in a way that's above and beyond because you've called me to reach people, the lost, that they would be saved and the, the found that they might be discipled. You've called me to do that. I don't just want to skate around in life. I want to rebuild the things that matter most to you, the things that you call me to. I want to be faithful to them. And I admit, Lord, I need your help. This is how we pray. If we're living the Christian life and we don't have to call on God because we don't need his help, I want to say something to you that's going to sound a little hard you're probably not fully living the Christian life. If you get up in the morning and you're just cool, like everything's fine, and you don't have to call on God, usually what that is, is that's a sign of us not being in the lives of other people that need him like we once did. And so when you start rolling your sleeves up and you get into the lives of other people, it's challenging. But it's easy to like back off people's lives and live in our Christian bubble and like, hey, my morality's pretty good and I read my Bible and I pray and I attend church and all that stuff. But when you roll your sleeves up and you get into the lives of other people and how messy it is, it reminds you of what God brought you out of and that you can help them come to the same place that God's brought you because that's what we're called to do. And we wanna rebuild that place in our lives of, of, of being a witness of Jesus. It's not just when we feel like it, it's, it's all the time and and. I got to move on here. My last point is Elijah prayed earnestly and God answered supernaturally. He put the sacrifice on the altar. He dug a trench. He doused everything with water. He, he wanted to make it hard that when I call on God, everybody knows that it's God. I, I love this. I love these prayers. Like when I pray this and God answers, everybody knows that it's God. Elijah called upon the Lord. Fire came from heaven, consumed the sacrifice, the water, the altar, it, it, even, even everything that was there, all of it. Israel saw this. Look at what happens. They fall on their faces and they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. After this, Elijah told Ahab, go for I hear the roar of a heavy shower coming. And he crouched down and he put his head between his legs. He began to pray to the God of heaven and earth to send the rain. Now is the time. The people repent. They come back to the Lord. Heart faithfulness heart loyalty, covenant faithfulness. They come back to the Lord and now the blessing comes from God. Now I'm gonna send the rain. But what he wanted first and what he wanted most was, was this. So he establishes that and he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring the rain. And this is what it says about Elijah in James 5, 17. It says he was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah was not just some superman. It says he was someone like, like us. But he kneels down after doing, I mean, I can't imagine what he was feeling and thinking when he had to confront the entire nation. He kneels down and he begins to pray and there's nothing happening. He sends his servant seven times. Nothing happens. 
And then finally, there's a cloud that's the size of a man's hand that's coming up out of the, that's coming up out of the sea. He says, I see a cloud. He says, well, we better get going then. And he has some kind of supernatural Nike thing hit him, and he runs like nobody's business. And we've spoken about prayer a lot lately. I've talked to you at least three messages that I shared with you, and there's principles and there's practices. Last week, we talked about perseverance. We talked about persistence that we need to ask and keep on asking, and those principles are true. We need to we need to give our heart to the Lord, not just our request to the Lord. And we need to keep asking the Lord. And when we do that, God answers. But there are other things also that are part of this, and that is our heart loyalty. And sometimes people will say, well, if God doesn't, you know, God answers prayer by yes, no, and not now. But what if God's reasoning for his no or not now is about the heart? It's not just an answer to the request. It's actually a new shift of focus to what he really wants and what he wants us to care about more. I want your heart allegiance. See, sometimes God's willing to withhold the reign of blessing in our life, whatever that, however we define that. He's willing to withhold that in order to draw us to him. It's, it's of utter concern to the Lord. Before the fire fell and the rains came, idolatry was confronted, the altar was rebuilt, and then came the rain. The supernatural God is still answering by fire, and he is still sending that heavenly rain today. God is sending rains of revival, and oh, how we need them today. In a crazy time of idolatry, and the first thing is, as the people of God, we can't give ourselves to other things, to lesser things, more than we do to the Lord. As we get together and, and, and worship and surround ourselves around his word, it says, the Bible says in 1 John, we provoke one another on to love and good deeds. This is so vital for the people of God to say, this is what the Lord wants. This is what the Lord is calling us to. And sometimes it should make us feel uncomfortable. That's actually a positive thing in the kingdom. To agitate our flesh is really good because our flesh wants comfort and it wants to be everything convenient. And so if we're not agitating our flesh at times, something's not going to go right for us. We need that holy agitation from, from God. But I wonder what if the same thing happens to us that happened to Israel where the true blessing of God is closed over our life because we're seeking the reign and not the relationship. And we're willing to seek that fulfillment and that peace and that joy outside of God. And that thing becomes an idol to us. We're willing to bow down at the altar of something else and give our affection and our devotion and our treasure and our time and all that to these other things. And we think nothing of it. Friends, how did Israel think that what they were doing was okay. They got deceived. And that's the thing about deception. It's really deceptive. <laughs> you don't often know it when you're in it. You don't know it until you're in it. But here's what you do know. When you lose that longing for the Lord, if I could just close with this, when you lose that longing for the Lord, like I want to be with you more. I want to study your word. It's from your heart. I want to love you with all my, if you've lost that friend, I'm telling you, there's probably some idols somewhere around your life. That longing, like, God, I want to obey you. I want to please you. I want to do what you want me to do. It's got to come from the heart. And if it's not there, something is off. Something's wrong. I'm not talking about being perfect. Amen. We're not talking about being perfect. Not, there's a longing from the inside. Oh God, I want to share the gospel. And that's our first inclination. I may not be good at it. 
I may blow it. I may not know how to do it, but I want to obey you. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. He said, preach the gospel. He said, live righteously. This is my desire. And when it's not, I'm telling you, something takes its place and satisfies us and accommodates us and makes us think Christianity is something that it's not. Something that it's not. You know, it's interesting. The idols wanted Israel to cut themselves and bleed and even die for them. But I want to remind you today that there's a God who already bled for you. And he's not asking us to kill ourselves and cut ourselves and placate him as though he can be appeased. He's asking us to live a life of utter surrender. He calls us to that every day of our life. And he doesn't negotiate. So we worship God on his terms and not on ours. And when we do that, we find fulfillment. We find peace. We find joy. Everything we were created for is found in an intimate, vibrant, and growing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, if you're going to be saved, be saved all the way. (laughs) I just like that, man. I don't know. I read that and I thought, ooh, kind of said ouch. But I know what he's saying. Jesus is the only God that you find and follow who will satisfy you. And even if you fail him, he'll forgive you. There's no other God like this. Would you stand as we pray? Thank you, Lord. Now today, I'm not going to tell you to run up here and place your idols on the altar. Although that's not a bad idea. But I do just want to honor the presence of God today. And and I want to respond to his word. We read it. We respond to it. So with every head bowed, could we just pray? Would you just surrender your heart fresh to the Lord? I encourage you to do that. Let's do that together, just as a people. Father, we thank you today. We surrender our hearts to you. There is no one like you. There is no other. You, you are the one true and living God. And we recognize that we live in a culture of options. And sometimes, even though we know better, we can give our time and our talent, our treasure, our affection to lesser things that do not deserve the place that only you should have. And God, we come to you today, and I just pray, Father, that we would be completely submitted to you and to your way. And whatever that means, Lord, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd speak into our heart. If there be any wicked way in us, if there be anything, Lord, that that is out of order, if there's some type of affection that we're giving to things that's just too much, Lord, would you speak to us? If you're calling us to lay something down and put it on the altar, and that's what surrender means, God, I pray that you'd make that clear in our minds and our hearts right now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd speak to us. I pray that we would lay it down. And that's what you've called us to, is not just to lay things down, but to lay our life down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. But that's not going to happen if we're not laying the things of this life down. And we're holding on to them. We're holding on to our life. And God, I just pray today that you would encourage us to take that next step, whatever it might be, to be your man, to be your woman, to be the one that represents you, that loves you, that serves you alone. And we thank you, Father, today for your word. And I pray that it would cut deep in our lives, not to make us feel guilty not to make us feel burdened in an unnecessary way, but Lord, to lift us up, to honor and love you and serve you as you deserve. So Father, I pray over us today as a people that you would send us in the mighty name of Jesus to go and serve you in our world in a way where we're not choosing all the options, but we're always choosing you. You deserve it. You're worthy of it today. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said... 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.